Well, today, we're moving on to the second epistle of the Thessalonians. This is what we do. We go verse by verse through the Bible. Don't always go in order of the books, but in this case, we are. Going right into the second epistle that Paul, Silas, and Timothy wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And moving on is sort of today's theme. That we're moving on from 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to read about how they were moving on into greater depths of obedience to the Lord. And I hope that that will be the same message that we receive too. That walking with Jesus is all about moving forward. Amen? It's not about staying still and watching things happen around you. It's about, like Paul said, pressing on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we're going to see the Thessalonians as they always are, were a great example. Now, you read through the book of Galatians, they're a bad example. Most of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, they're a bad example. But the Thessalonians were a good example for us to follow because despite violent persecution, they were still growing and moving forward. And Paul's going to say, I, I brag about you everywhere I go because of that. Jesus had said in John 15, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified. We pray those prayers all the time, and they're good prayers to pray. We say, God, you get the glory, Lord. You receive all the glory. Well, Jesus tells us how in this verse. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. That you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That's the goal of every Christian life, is growth. We even say, are you growing in the Lord? Kind of falls into common parlance, which is good. We should be growing. Progress, you could call it. Progress in your Christian faith. Maturity. Paul will talk a lot about that. There's an old song from Reliant K that was called Forward Motion. And this, the chorus to that song was, I struggle with forward motion. We all struggle with forward motion. Can anybody say amen to that? Sometimes you struggle with forward motion. You know you're supposed to go forward. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time today proving to you that you need to be going forward. I hope that this will be an exhortation to you that you ought to be moving forward. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to be a doer of the word. Amen? And I hope that these words will call us upward. And I'll tell you before we even read these verses that this week the Lord has been prepping me for this message. The Holy Spirit has been working on me, getting me ready, which means the Lord has something to say to the church here today. So I hope your ears are open and your heart is ready to receive what the Spirit has to say because who cares what I have to say? What matters is that the Lord is speaking through His Word. Amen? Let's read these first two verses to begin. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of 2 Thessalonians is just about identical to the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. You have the same authors, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus, of course, was Silas, as you know him from the book of Acts. Now, Paul was what you might call the primary author. We're going to see in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, there are going to be two separate places where he's going to say, I say, or do you not remember that I did? Most of the time, he's going to be writing in us and we say to you. It's important for us to remember that, that it was not Paul by himself writing this letter, but Silas and Timothy were also writing this with him. To remind you of the story, when Paul and Silas and Timothy were on his second missionary journey, remember after the first one, Paul and Barnabas had separated and gone their own ways, they had gone up through the churches that they had planted before in Galatia, and Paul wanted to go farther into Asia, but it says that twice the Holy Spirit prevented him. It doesn't say how, but the Holy Spirit prevented him. So they began to pray and say, all right, Lord, where next? And Paul had a vision in the night of a Macedonian man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. That's what you call a call, right? A Macedonian call, as we say. So they got on a boat. They went over to Macedonia, and the first stop was in the city of Philippi. You remember the story of Philippi? This is where they met Lydia at the river. They cast the demon out of that girl, but her slave masters got them in trouble, whipped the crowd into a frenzy. They were beaten without a trial and thrown into prison. This is when they began to sing, right? And the jail doors were ripped open, and the jailer and his whole family was saved, and Paul and Silas got a public apology from the city officials. Like, why don't you all just, just leave? Sorry, we didn't know that you were citizens. He's like, I don't think so. 
You're not going to leave the rest of this city thinking that these Christians are criminals. You're going to let everybody know that we didn't do anything wrong. Well, their next stop in Acts chapter 17 was Thessalonica. That was the next stop after Philippi. Thessalonica, you'll remember, was called the Metropolis of Macedonia. It was a major port city that trade would come in and out to access the rest of Macedonia. Four major roads crossed through Thessalonica. To this day, as it's called Thessaloniki, is the second largest city in Greece, second only to Athens. So it's still the metropolis of Macedonia. It was what was called a free city. Rome had different categorizations for the cities that they conquered in the empire. Some, like Judea, were, they were subjugated. They, they were under the authority of Rome, and Rome was pressing their thumb down on them. Other places were what you call colonies, where it was like living in Rome, but there was always that threat that if you got to keep things in line or Rome could come in and assert themselves. But then you had free cities. To live in a free city was the equivalent of living in the city of Rome. So Thessalonica was not in Rome or Italy. It was in Macedonia. But we went through this history at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. But to remind you, they had sided with Octavian against Brutus and Cassius after Julius Caesar was assassinated. And they had sided with Octavian against Mark Antony. They had a knack for picking who was going to win the battle. And so because of that, because the battles that were fought near them were so decisive, they were given the status of a free city. And what was so different for us is when you're reading the, the Gospels, everybody hates Rome. They want Rome gone. They, they're calling on Jesus. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? In Thessalonica, they were proud to be Roman. They loved being Roman. They were not ethnically Roman, but they were part of the empire and they wanted to be part of the empire. They had, of course, as all the other cities did, various gods that they would worship and idolatrous practices, but the main worship in Thessalonica was the worship of Caesar, the worship of the goddess Rome, or Roma as she was called. They worshiped, quite literally, their empire. And Paul and Silas and Timothy come to this place. And you remember from Acts 17, they planted the church. Church was going well. The Jews began to get jealous because all the Gentiles that had been in the synagogues were now going to listen to Paul. So they kicked him out, but all the Gentiles just went with Paul. Well, it says they went to the marketplace and they stirred up a rabble to come and drag Paul before the, the city officials. Paul wasn't there, so they grabbed the guy Jason, whose house they were staying at. And Jason had to put up security for Paul and the other apostles, which means you're going to pay an insurance policy here that if these folks cause any trouble, it's going to come out of your pocket. Now you can see that these Jews, who were, of course, willing to break anything they felt was necessary to get rid of Paul, Paul and Silas and Timothy left the city at this point. And it was in Thessalonica where it was said that they had turned the world upside down. Love that verse, right? They go to Berea. Those same Jews chased them to Berea and chased Paul out of there. And he went down to Athens and then down to Corinth. Timothy and Silas eventually rejoined him in the city of Corinth. But he sent Timothy back. He said, go back to Thessalonica, check on them, see how they're doing because we weren't able to be there very long and I'm concerned for them. Well, when Timothy came back, he brought a good report. They're doing great. They're not mad at you, Paul. They're suffering persecution, but they're growing and they're doing well. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy wrote a letter to the church in Thessalonica, which we call 1 Thessalonians. And Timothy takes the letter up there and comes back to Corinth and delivers more news to Paul, and they send another letter to the Thessalonians, and that is this letter here, 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to see in this letter that it is still very positive, like the first one was, but Paul is going to address more specific things. He's going to talk more about the rapture, because they had questions about that, so he's going to give a follow-up lesson to all those things. And he's also going to address the issue of idleness that had become a problem in the church. Some folks were saying, well, if Jesus is coming back, what's the point going to work? And Paul's like, get back to work, y'all. We're going to get to that at the very end of this book. And as I've said before, other than the book of Galatians, the Thessalonian epistles are the earliest letters that we have in the New Testament. So this was around 50 AD that these letters were sent. 
which is remarkable because Jesus, we believe, was crucified around 30 A.D., which means it's only been two decades since Jesus died and rose again, which means it only took the church 20 years to turn the world upside down. Isn't that awesome? That's forward motion. That's what's possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says there in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace, charis and irene. That's what grace and peace were in Greek. That greeting was in just about every epistle in the New Testament. We have grace from the Father that gives us peace with the Father. It's also cool because grace, kyre, was how Greeks greeted each other. That was their hello, kyre, grace. And the Jews greeted each other, do you know? They still say it. Shalom, which means what? Peace. So you can see that the, the Greek and the Jew have been brought together even in the way they greeted one another. Grace and peace to you. And it's also very cool to see in verse 2 how Jesus Christ is put on equal footing with the Father, isn't he? Grace to you and peace from God and the Lord Jesus. So folks want to say, the early church didn't believe that Jesus was God. Well, they believed he could dispense grace and peace along with the Father, so I don't know what else you call that. That's the story of the Thessalonians. Every church has their own story. Ours is very different. Your story is very different. My story is different from yours. But it's all by the grace and peace of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Which is why this letter can be very instructive for us. So we get into verse 3 and 4 now. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul usually has a commendation that follows his greeting. He usually has some nice things to say about the churches. Even to the church in Corinth, which we give so much flack, Paul has a lot of really great things to say about them. Again, the Galatians epistle, which not only was written to address a very dangerous situation, but was written when Paul was very young, has a very, very short commendation section. He's like, yeah, 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 you're doing great. Let's get to the problem here. <laughs> Similar to the letters that Jesus would write in Revelation, right? As, I, I know your works, and I know that you've done all these great things. And then he would say, but I have this against you. In the same way, that's how Paul structures his letters. He begins with a commendation and a blessing. He says, you're doing so great, I boast about you. I go to other churches, and I use you as a good example. What churches were these? Probably Athens, probably Corinth at this point. I'm sure in the letters he was writing to some of these other places. We read in 2 Corinthians, which would come later after this, that Paul is still boasting about the Macedonians. He's talking about taking up that collection to go to Jerusalem. And he says, the, the Thessalonians are broke. They have no money. And, and I wasn't even going to ask them to give anything to this project. And they said, hey, we want to help too. So he uses that to stir up the attitude of generosity in the Corinthians, who did have a lot of money, apparently, or at least more than the Thessalonians did. It's okay to use other Christians as an example. Christian biographies are some of the best reading you can get to read about some of these people that just went all out for Jesus Christ. Because it, it provokes you, doesn't it? We provoke one another, the Bible says, to love and good works. It's like, I want to do that. Ah, he's no better than me. The Lord's like, you're right. So what does he have that you don't have? Like, I guess it's faith. Let's move on. Let's get going, right? And he says, we ought to give thanks. To be clear, he's not saying, well, I suppose I ought to give thanks for you. I don't really want to, but I kind of have to. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's only right. And in fact, where he says, as is right, the word for right in Greek is axios, and it means worthy. You are worthy of me giving thanks to God for you. Maybe they had read his last letter, which was so effusive and so complimentary, and they're like, Paul, come on, we don't deserve all that. And he comes in and says, no, 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 it is only right that I do this for you. Samuel told the children of Israel in 1 Samuel 12, he said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. We ought to be praying for one another, right? Now, why was he giving thanks? We give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because, here it is, your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. The reason 
for the thanksgiving of Paul and Silas and Timothy for the church in Thessalonica was their spiritual growth. It says they were growing abundantly. This is only one Greek word because it's so intense we needed to add the word abundantly to it. The Greek word there is huparauxano. And I love the one translation that somebody gave which was to flourish. To grow, but not just to grow, it's to grow abundantly. To flourish, to do amazingly well. And he says they were increasing. Pleonazo. This is super abounding. Paul's like, you're not just abounding, you're overflowing. You're, you're flourishing, you're overflowing, you're doing so well I can hardly believe it. You're moving forward in leaps and bounds with Jesus Christ. Even though I was only to be able to be there for a short time, even though I had to send Timothy, who is new at this and very, very young, you're growing and you're enduring persecution. Your love and your faithfulness and your faith is all flourishing. We talked a lot at the end of 1 Thessalonians about what we call sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing process of salvation. When you first got saved, it was that initial moment that we called justification, where you got saved. You entered into the sphere of salvation. The Holy Spirit came within you, regenerated your heart. You were justified. Your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Someday, you're looking forward to being glorified. We call that glorification. This says that you will come into heaven, your life will be over, the Lord will glorify your body, you will put aside sin and flesh forever, you will be like him, the word says, for you will see him as he is. So in that sense, you will be saved. You're looking forward to the day of salvation. Peter in his epistles talks a lot more about the coming salvation than the salvation you've already experienced. So justification and glorification. Someday and back then. But what about right now? What about day by day? Day by day. That's called sanctification. Sanctify means to make holy. A sanctuary is a holy room where we do holy things. So to be sanctified is to be holified, to make something holy. Sanctification is holification. God is making you holy. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit came to dwell within you. Isn't that radical? God sent his Holy Spirit to come and dwell within you. And that Holy Spirit is constantly at work in you to shape you to look more and more like Jesus Christ. He, he comes to your conscience, and now you can't get away with the stuff you used to get away with because your conscience bugs you. Now you have these things that you wanted to overcome, and you find yourself able to overcome them. He empowers your prayer life so that you have a direct connection to God all the time. He gives you gifts of his, of his Holy Spirit to edify others and to have a direct encounter with God. Sanctification, growth into Christ-likeness. Ephesians 4 talks about Jesus ascended and sent the Spirit so that the church could work on each other. The word for spiritual gift is charisma. It comes from the word grace. When the Holy Spirit is using you, he is using you as an instrument of grace to make that other person more holy. Isn't that awesome? You know, people want to talk about the sacraments. Are the sacraments a means of grace? And it's really not a biblical discussion because the Bible doesn't talk a lot about that. But you know what it does talk about? Christians as a means of grace to one another. Because the Holy Spirit is using you to edify and sanctify that other person. He works on you on your own. But you know that when you come into the church, it's kind of hard to ignore somebody speaking to your face. God's like, I've been knocking on your heart and you're not listening. So I'm going to have Tyler say it when you're sitting up and paying attention. And then I'm going to have the home fellowship say it. And then I'm going to have somebody take you aside and look you in the eye and say, I really think this is something you need to be working on. That's how we edify and build up one another. The process of sanctification. And this is what the Thessalonians were doing. They were being sanctified. They were growing. They were flourishing. Jesus would compare it to a vine, right? As I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. So he uses the metaphor of fruit, of grapes growing on a vine. That, yes, you, you're part of the vine, but a vine's branches are supposed to have fruit on them. And so the more you grow in Christ Jesus, the more fruit you ought to bear. The more signs there ought to be that you are saved. We're not saved by works, but you better believe there's going to be works that follow after salvation. James said faith without works is what? Dead. You might say, well, I'm a, 
I'm a branch attached to the vine. He's like, okay, I believe you, but there's no fruit there. How dare you judge me? How dare you judge my branch? Well, you don't have any grapes on the branch. Well, that doesn't mean I'm not part of it. You look at my DNA. I, I am definitely a branch. Okay, well, you're not, you got any grapes on you. So what use are you? Well, I'm part, of the, I'm part of the vine. You know what the Lord said? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit is what? Cut off and thrown into the fire. So there ought to be fruit. Your character ought to be changing. Yes? You ought to be more like Jesus today than you were a year ago. There ought to be stories of ministry that you can look back on, how God used me to affect that person or this situation. Your motivations change. Your habits change. That's fruit. The fruit of the Christian life. That's the goal. To bear much fruit. Jesus talked an awful lot about that. He's about to go to the cross and he spends a good deal of time talking about fruit. Growth. Paul would put it this way to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. This is the same Timothy that co-wrote this letter. He said, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. I've sent you, Timothy, to be the pastor of that church in Ephesus. And the elders laid their hands on you and prophesied over you. You received the gifts of the Spirit. You are equipped for this ministry, but you've got to grow. Let everybody see your progress. We get so touchy about that, don't we? Don't evaluate me. Paul's like, live in such a way that people can evaluate you and say, you know, when you first got here, you could preach, but it's been 10 years, and wow. You know, you, it was, you were kind of timid and afraid at the beginning, Timothy, but now after a while we can see you growing. He says, practice these things. It's funny, we expect preachers to practice preaching, but we don't think that we should have to practice anything else in the church. Practice showing mercy to people. Practice hospitality. Practice speaking in tongues. Oh, we shouldn't have to do that. Uh, yeah, you should. It's the gift of the Spirit. Practice what God's given you to do. Well, God has called me to be an evangelist. Well, get out there and practice. Well, I'm just waiting until I'm mature. You, you, you learn by doing, right? Everybody's got that friend that has bought way too many workout clothes and has signed up for way too many exercise programs and loves to strut around the way but never does anything in the way of exercise. But they're experts on how it ought to be done. Don't you love it when somebody who's really out of shape comes up to you at the gym and tells you your form is wrong? It's like, move along, dude. <laughs> don't, don't come and tell me. It's the same thing. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. That's, that's important. I'm, I'm trying to do it, but I feel like I'm not making any progress. Well, do you immediately after church is over go home and just glut yourself with the things of the world? Man, what was he talking about this morning? The Lord really was speaking to my heart. I, I was ready to do something and make some changes, but I can't remember what it was. Well, you went home and you watched six hours of Netflix. That's what happened. You were binging on the world. So, and, you're, and you're just being very dainty with the way that you're partaking of the Lord. Paul told Timothy, immerse yourself in these things. Be immersed in them. Make progress. Make an effort. I don't think we should have to make an effort in our growth. Well, you have not read your New Testament. Well, it's God's responsibility. Yes, but God said, get up and move. A lot of times we want to say God is sovereign as an excuse to avoid what our sovereign God has told us to do. And here's where I want to really take a turn and be serious here. We, we all know everything that I just said. Not, nothing I said was new to you. We know we ought to grow. But I'd say most Christians are indifferent as to whether or not they are growing spiritually. Indifferent. They're not opposed. They don't want to resist the growth. But you know what? If it comes, it comes. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. We're much more concerned with the numerical growth of the church. I want to see this place filled up with people. Because then people will know who we are. And then I won't have those weird looks when people ask me where I go to church. And they go, where is that again? We'll show them. We'll fill this place up. And we'll have so much ministry, they won't know what to do with us. We get really excited about that. We're really excited about fundraising and, and special events and drives, but we're less concerned with the spiritual growth in our own hearts. But let me tell you, with Jesus, it is either sanctification or stagnation. I'll say that again. 
With Christ, it is either sanctification or stagnation. You know what stagnant water is? You ever go outside after a rainstorm? Maybe it's been a long rainstorm and the heat has been beaten down outside and there's a bucket that's been sitting out in the sun full of water. You know, it looks fine. looks like water. But then you go take it and you dump it out and that smell hits you. That stagnant, nasty water. Looks fine. And as long as you're not stirring it up, you're not going to know anything's wrong. But you empty that bucket and you see what's going on inside and there's a smell. That's stagnation. And there are churches full of stagnant Christians. There's probably some stagnant Christians in this room right now watching on this live stream. Where everything looks great. It looked just like everybody else. But if you were to empty that out, you would say, oh, what is that smell? That doesn't smell like Jesus. That smells like stagnation. Which is astonishing because the Thessalonians were small. They'd only had a few, maybe at the most, months of instruction from Paul and the apostles. And they were persecuted. They were under persecution. People that actively wanted to shut them down. And yet they were growing. They were flourishing. They were abounding in faith and love and endurance. And here we sit. We are the generation, this very second right now, that has more opportunity to know God and learn the Bible and learn about ministry and travel to do missions and serve in the church than ever before. It's true. We have more programs. We have more seminaries. We have more money we have more theological expertise. But I'd say that in most cases, the church is stagnating. We're, we're, we're losing. Let's just be real for a second. Let's look at the culture. We're losing. Are things getting more like Jesus? Are people becoming more sanctified? Is the next generation coming up looking to be the most fiery, rock and roll Christian generation of all time? Well, how is that possible? We've just spent the last 50, 60 years with more stuff than ever before because there was no internal change going on. Stagnation. Let me give you a parable from Jesus. Matthew 25. He told the parable of the talents. A talent was not like I'm good at art or I'm good at riding a bicycle. A talent was a, was a form of money. He gave money to these guys. And the story was the master gave one servant five talents, one servant two, and one servant one. He said, I'm going to go away on a journey, and I'm going to come back, and you do business with the money while I'm gone, and we'll see what we get. The guy with five made five more. The guy with two made two more. But the one with only one was too scared to lose what he had, so he buried it in the ground. The master comes back. He says, look here. I I've got your money. You haven't lost a thing. He said, you wicked, lazy servant. A lot of times, I think that's how the Lord looks at us. We've got so much, and we take it and we bury it in the ground. I'm not going to lose it. We're going to keep it just the way it's supposed to be. I'm not going to take any risk. I'm not going to step out. I'm just going to try to maintain things the way they are. Jesus doesn't say, well, good, I'm glad that you're, you're maintaining what I've given you. He says, you are wicked and lazy. Have you taken the gifts that God has given you and hidden them and made no progress? Well, I have. Well, is it visible? Can you see it? Is there fruit on that vine? The Thessalonians, Paul's like, I can brag about you. I can go everywhere and tell everybody exactly what you're doing and how you're growing. It's wonderful. Go tell those Corinthians what's what with all their issues. And you say, well, listen, when God wants me to grow, I'll grow. You cannot expect God to grab you by the ear and drag you down and say, you are going to grow spiritually. Now, sometimes God will do that, but it's more along the lines he'll whack you upside the head with a two-by-four to get your attention. This is your two-by-four. Nor can you assume that time equals maturity. I've been in the church for this long, therefore I am mature. That's growth, that's fruit. Now listen, there are worse things than being in the church for a long time. But there are some folks that are in the church for so long, the church starts to look like them, but that's a problem because they don't look like Jesus. And everybody comes to the church and begins to assume, well, that's what Jesus looks like. Look, they're the ones showing us. And then the kids grow up and they say, well, that's what Jesus looks like. And then their grandkids grow up and they say, if that's what Jesus looks like, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And off they go. That would be an example of the dead wood on the vine 
telling the new growth to back off. Let me ask you, I'm not pointing fingers, I don't have anybody in mind, would you even recognize revival if it came to you? Would you be ready for it? Or would you say, this is unseemly, this isn't church, this isn't Jesus, I don't want anything to do with that. Calm down. Time does not equal maturity, and God is not going to force you to grow. He wants you to grow. He'll cajole you to grow. He'll take things away from you to try to force you to grow. He'll have Tyler come here and give a really strong message to try and spur you on to grow. But he's not going to make you. And if we think, well, revival would be everybody turning out just like me. You're wrong. This is why the Lord said, I need to get some new wineskins in here because these folks can't take what I'm about to do. Y'all can't even handle what I'm about to do. They kept on asking Jesus all these irrelevant questions, remember? We did the gospel, like, why don't they wash their hands according to the traditions of the elders? We're like, the, the dead are rising and the lepers are clean and people are walking that were late. Who cares how we're washing our hands? They were walking in the field and they started eating grain on the Sabbath day. Jesus said, yeah, you get your donkey out of the pit on the Sabbath day. Leave them alone. Jesus, she's a sinner. You can't let her touch you. He's like, are you out of your mind? I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sick people. Jesus said, I didn't come to fill my church with good people. I came to fill it with rotten, scary people. We've got to grow. Paul said to Timothy, it takes effort. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul compares himself to an athlete. He says, if those athletes can spend their whole lives disciplining themselves and only eating certain things and always exercising and not having any life and putting off wives and kids their whole lives in order to pursue their leafy crown, which is what they got back then, then certainly I can do that for Jesus Christ. So I discipline my body. He says, I beat my body into submission to make it obey Christ. Sometimes that's what you've got to do to grow. Amen? You've got to knock yourself around a little bit. You've got to say, no, we're doing this. I don't want to. It doesn't matter what you want to. It matters what he wants to do. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh, and these two are contrary to one another. You've heard that old analogy, right? The, the Indian said, there is a black dog and a white dog inside of me, and every day they fight. The man says, well, which one wins? He says, whichever one I feed the most. Immerse yourself, Christian. How do I do that? How do I grow? Well, you know what to do. It's not complicated. This is what's so tough. We're like Naaman, the Syrian. Right? He had leprosy, and he comes to Elisha, and he says, I want to be healed. Elisha says, go jump in the Jordan River seven times. And he was offended. That's it? I expected he'd come and wave his hand over me and make a big show and use that big trembling voice over me, and then, then I would be healed, and I, wow, it would be amazing. And his servant said, if he had told you to do something crazy, you'd have done it. All he wants you to do is go take a bath. You can't do that. The same thing is true for you and me. What do I got to do, Lord? I'll do anything. He says, read your Bible every day. Oh, well, Lord, that's so simple. Y yes, because you are simple. You needed something simple because you couldn't do the other stuff. I couldn't do the other stuff. And if you could, you'd be prideful and we'd be lifting people up. Look at that, man. Lord, I want to grow. What do I do? Pray. And as I have said many times, in great conviction to myself, it's not enough to agree that praying would be a good idea. That's not prayer. Hey, I've been praying for you. If by that you mean I thought of you the other day and said I should pray for them, don't lie. Come on. We know you love each other and you're trying to be nice and everything, but really pray. I, I guarantee you, you do 10 straight days of morning, evening, and nighttime prayer, your life will be transformed. It'll be radically changed. Because prayer is not just talking to the ceiling, it's talking to the living God who dwells within you. Lord, I want to grow. I want to, I want to mature. How do I do that? Go to church. Well, it seems so simple. It is simple. Because when you're around other Christians, they start to affect you. The only thing you have in common is Jesus, and that influence starts to take more and more precedence in your life. Worship me, the Lord says. Come to church and sing it like you mean it. Well, Lord, I don't really like the song. What? Who cares if you like the songs? Let me say that again. Who cares if you like the songs? Who cares if you like the music? Now listen, I, I have taught this message to young folks most of my life, which is, I don't care if you don't like the hymns, sing the hymns, because they're about Jesus. But maybe you need to hear the other thing. Sing the contemporary worship songs. They're about Jesus. Well, they got so many words. So do the hymns. Let's be real. Come on. 
worship like you mean. You're coming into God's presence. When you stand before Jesus in heaven, how do you think you're going to worship and sing? I can only imagine. But we're standing there, and let's be, I'm, I'm talking to myself here, so don't, don't get all upset with me now. We're standing there, we're checking our watch, we're checking our phone, we're planning out meals for the week. Oh, yeah, I'm going to need to go to the grocery store and buy that thing. And, oh, this one again. He's played this one three weeks in a row. Okay, come on. Oh, okay, we're done. All right, good, I'm going to sit down. Maybe if I take a bathroom break, that'll knock out, what, at least eight minutes. That's a song and a half. Let me ask you, Christian, have you ever, I know I have, have you ever been in, in a worship service singing praise to God and the Holy Spirit just laid you out before the Lord? and you were on your face, and you were weeping, and you were trembling, and you knew that God was in that room. And it wasn't just us singing songs. It might be a song you've sung a thousand times, and maybe nobody else was even feeling it, so to speak, but God was speaking to you. That, that possibility excites me. Every time I come to church, like this, this could be one of those days where the Lord just descends. Like, like in 1 Kings 8, when they were dedicating the temple, and it said that the glory of the Lord was so heavy there, the priest couldn't even minister well, Lord, we had a plan. We were going to do sacrifices and songs, but the, the glory of the Lord, the cloud was so thick, they couldn't even do anything. There was just Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus yet. They didn't know him by that name, but we do. Lord, I want to grow. How do I grow? Serve in the church. Well, all they have to do is, is like cleaning toilets and vacuuming. Yes, it's a great way to break your pride, isn't it? If you're rich, you should volunteer for the clean team. I'll tell you, sometimes educated, rich people don't want to do those kinds of jobs. They think they're above them. You're not. Getting down and scrubbing the bottom underside of a toilet will remind you of Jesus Christ who got on his knees to wash his disciples' feet, and he was the Lord of glory. It teaches you to be thinking about other people, praying for other people. Lord, I, I want to I grow. How do I grow? Go out there and share the gospel with somebody. I'm not good at that. Good. That means you're not going to depend on you. It's going to depend on the Holy Spirit. You're just out there sowing seeds. God gives the increase. Well, what if they ask me a question I don't understand? Then say, I don't know, but God probably does. Be like the, the blind man. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. Don't you know this man's a sinner? He says, I don't know anything. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. You can say that, can't you? And the more you do, I'll tell you what, when I evangelize, every single time I dedicate myself to go out and evangelize, I have some radical encounter with somebody because God's setting it up. I was like, this person needs to hear the gospel, so I'm going to send her out to go and talk to him. I went out sharing the gospel with our youth group one time. I was scared to death. I get scared when I evangelize. This is easy for me. That's hard. And I, I start talking to this old man sitting on a bench. I thought, this is about as tame as it's going to get. And I go talk to him, and I start telling him about Jesus. Turned out he had been in the seminary to be a Catholic priest when he was a young man. And while he was in that seminary, he walked away from the Lord and renounced his faith. And he told me he was deathly ill and was coming close to the end of his life. And I was there telling him about Jesus. The Lord had not let go of that man after decades, 50 years or more since he had last cared anything about God. And God was still chasing him down and he was using me to do it. That's what happens when we go out there and you share the gospel with people. Christian, don't you know you're going to be held account before the judgment seat of Christ one day? You're going to stand before Jesus and your whole life is going to be evaluated. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. When you stand before Christ, as a believer, this is not about your soul now. Your soul was handled at the cross, but when you're raptured and you stand before Jesus, Paul compares the church to a building. Jesus is the foundation, and every Christian adds a few bricks. Because some people are adding gold, silver, and precious stones, and some people it's wood, hay, and stubble. And Jesus Christ will look at that church with the fire of his gaze, and it's all going to be tested by the flame. When you heat up gold, silver, and precious stones, they're purified. When you heat up wood, hay, and stubble, it burns up. And there will be some Christians who arrive in heaven who have lived only for the things of earth, and they will watch everything they have ever lived for and worked for amount to nothing. And the true disciples will be rewarded. It says, you'll be saved, but as through fire. You'll have your soul, and that's it. 
and praise the Lord for it. But why would you want to come to heaven like that? We look at the world around us and we get mad. Sometimes it's appropriate. Say, Lord, look what they're doing. How dare they? How dare they speak that way? How dare they pass that law? How dare they do this thing? And you know what? That's appropriate. But what's the answer? The answer is you. The Lord's plan is the church. The church is plan A, and there is no plan B. And in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says that there are vessels that God can use, and anybody can be a vessel fit for the master's use if you allow him to clean you out. You allow yourself to be brought to that next stage of sanctification. You can be the one that God uses. The Thessalonians understood this. They were growing. They were braggable. Everywhere Paul went, he was bragging about the Thessalonians in a good, godly way. Don't you want to be like them? You read through some of the early, early church writings, and it's, it's kind of funny the way they talk about one another because they talk like they're competing in righteousness. Ignatius or whoever would write things like, we're not going to let y'all beat us. Your church is great, but, but we're going to be the church that is more righteous and more holy and leads more people to salvation. Not who builds a bigger building and who has fancier clothing and has more rich, famous people coming. They competed with one another, good-naturedly. <laughs> we ought to be growing. And as we bring it closer to the end here, I'm going to give a few examples of how we're to be growing. We, we've talked about it, the importance of it, how we do it, but there's a few things specifically that Paul addresses in this passage, so we're going to address them here. Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So that every day you to look a little bit more like Jesus. So that your life becomes a duplicate of Christ's life. Which is why Jesus said in John 14, you're going to do the works that I did and even greater works than these you will do because I'm going to send my spirit to you and you're going to have access to the Father through prayer and you're going to have one another and instead of just one man and his 12 followers, it's going to be millions of y'all. So we need to grow. And Paul gives us three things that the Thessalonians were growing in that we ought to grow in too. First of all, he says, your faith is growing abundantly. Their faith was flourishing you ought to be growing in faith. Now you say, hold on, I already put my faith in Jesus. I'm already saved. Are you saying I won't get more saved? No. But the things that you believed when you were saved ought to become more and more true, and you ought to have more and more trust in those things, and they should affect more and more areas of your life the longer you live. This isn't initial faith. This is ongoing faith. This is lifelong faith. Remember when Jesus was asleep in the boat? The disciples were rowing, and here comes the wind and the waves, and the storm is terrible, and there's Jesus asleep. And they wake him up, and they say, Master, wake up! Don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus stood up and rebuked the storm. And he turned to them and said, I'm so glad you knew to call for me, because, you know, I was, I was there to help you all. No, he said, where's your faith? Luke 8, 25, where's your faith? You, you've seen how many things, and you were afraid that I'm going to get drowned in the lake? Don't you know who I am? I'm in the boat with you. What are you worried about? Where is your faith? You put your initial faith in Christ for salvation, but you should trust him for everything else too. You ought to have faith for provision. Jesus said the Lord knows that you need all that stuff. Dad, you're not the provider for your house. God is. And he uses you to do it, but you've got to remember whose job it is. And if you ever find yourself on the edge, you don't panic. You don't freak out. You don't contemplate some crime in order to get the money or something irresponsible. You get on your knees and you say, God, you're the provider, and we need provision. Doesn't that seem impertinent? No, it's not. It's saying, God, I believe you. I'm trusting you. Just don't forget, though, sometimes God will make you wait to the last minute. And sometimes God will let you go past the deadline to show you, hey, I still got you. Trust him for his, your provision. Trust him for the nation. Oh, everybody's so panicked right now. Oh, things are bad. Things are scary. Oh, everyone's worried. Everyone's wringing their hands. What's going to happen? These people, and, and, and on every side. No one has a monopoly on being worried right now. But God's sovereign over all these things. Remember what we read in Romans 13 before the election? It's still true after the election. No authority exists except the authority that comes from God. And if anyone resists the authority that is in place, he resists what God has put into place. Well, we're a democracy. You don't think God is bigger than democracy? You don't think God is bigger than votes? 
hey, Tyler, this is too serious for you to be joking. I'm not joking. I'm dead serious. If God did this, he must have a purpose for it. Trust him. Have faith. Trust him for your heart. God's chosen you. He's loved you. Don't, don't let the enemy come in and accuse you. You're no good. You're worthless. No one will ever care about you. You say, yeah, right. Jesus died on the cross for me. Let that truth saturate your life. Hey, hear about this one. Trust God for the miraculous. You know what Jesus said to people when they came to him for healing? He said, according to your faith, be it unto you. Uh-oh. And then people stand up in the seminary and say, no, why don't we see miracles today? God must be done and doesn't do miracles anymore. Okay, well, you just convinced another generation of pastors to not have any faith for the miraculous. Jesus could do no great works in Nazareth because they had no faith. Jesus could not. Jesus Christ could not. We've seen miracles in this room. And I'm not talking like, oh, maybe. I'm, I'm talking about healing of something that was broken. We've seen emotional deliverance in this room. And we're going to see more. That's not enough. I want more. I want to see more. Are we allowed to pray for miracles? Read Acts chapter 4. They prayed. They said, Lord, persecution is coming. We need signs and wonders. And the Lord said, hey, take it easy. That's my, that's my job. No, the Lord shook the building and said, all right, let's go. I'm not going to take, rid of that, take away that persecution, but I'll give you boldness and I'll give you miracles. Faith. Haven't you seen great things? Luke 17, 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Very interesting, the things the disciples asked Jesus. They didn't say, teach us to preach. They said, teach us to pray. They didn't say, Lord, increase our influence. They said, increase our faith. You ought to believe better now than you have before as you grow in faith. As you see God be more faithful to you every day, you should have that much more faith that he's going to do it again. Number two, they were growing in love. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing, it said in verse 3. Their love was pleonazo, super abounding in love. You ever meet someone who was super abounding in love? They walk in and you're just kind of like dancing a little bit because you want to go talk to them because every time you talk to them, you're just going to feel so good. But it wasn't just a few of them, was it? He says, every one of you is growing in love. No one was left out. They were all growing in love. Every one of us should be growing in love. Your capacity to love people should grow day by day. We all come into the kingdom of God with various ranges. Some people have been huggers and lovers even before they were saved. And the Lord takes that and he just intensifies it. Some of us were some hard-hearted people. You say, well, this is the way I am. Not anymore. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus, and he wants to open up that heart. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Sometimes we think that we're righteous because of how grumpy we are. I'm angry about all the right things. That's how you know I'm godly. What? Is that what Jesus was like? Jesus had love for everybody all the time. So you ought to be growing in love. If you want to be more like Jesus, get more love in your life. And we know what love is from 1 Corinthians 13. So these are some things you should ask yourself. I'm just going to run through them real quickly. Are you more patient and kind than you have been before? Do you envy less and boast less? Are you less proud and less rude and less self-seeking than you were before? Is your anger under control? Do you let go of grudges when people hurt you? Do you rejoice in the truth? Do you protect? Do you trust? Do you hope? Do you persevere? That's what love is. And that's what the Lord wants to shape in you. The qualities that we ought to have for one another. When somebody walks in that door, they ought to feel like, I have finally found people who love me. You know, that is where a lot of folks get trapped in the gay lifestyle. Because they feel unwelcome. Most of the time there's been abuse, there's been some kind of trouble in the family. And here they find a bunch of people that love them and respect them and throw a party for them and have parades for them. It's like, why would I, why would I want to go back to my family? bunch of dysfunctional people. Gangs are the same way. I got no family. I got no dad. I got no friends. Everybody beats me up, but I come here and I'm family with these people. We walk together. We stand together. We dress the same. We have the same goals. That's what the church is to be. 
Somebody walks in that door, they should feel love. And sometimes people don't want to receive the love. You keep giving it. They come in and say, don't touch me, don't talk to me. They sit in the back and they got that big scowl on their face. Go and love them anyway. There was a young lady in our youth group who, she came in one day and she came in and sat in the very back, right by the door. And I noticed her coming in because she was new. And I said, amen. She was up and she was gone. I grabbed two or three of our really great youth kids. I said, go chase that girl down and go say hello to her. Bring her back in here. And they said, I said, do you get to talk to her? Yeah, we just barely. And then she walked off. And I had them do that five or six weeks in a row. You know, she left it. Go back. Go grab her. Go say hello to her. Go love on her. Finally, she stuck around. And finally, she came to one of our events. And she had two or three girls that just made best friends with her. She, to this day, is still a crucial part of that church. She's still friends with all those people. And we found out later that she had moved to that city because of some really horrible, heartbreaking things that had happened to her in another city. And she was having a hard time trusting or loving anybody. And we just chased her down. First day was, what's your name? And that's about it. The next day was, how are you doing? Good. But she began to realize, these people, are, are, they care about me. And the Lord radically transformed and healed her life. That's what we're supposed to do for one another. Love. You know, I'll say this very quickly for time's sake, but when we start getting some sinners in here, it's going to be messy. You ready for that? You, you ready to, to watch your church become a little less comfortable for you to come and sit down? And people come in and, she can't come to church dressed like that. Well, she doesn't know God yet. He can't talk like that during, he can't use words like that when he's in church. They, they, they're, they're doing that on purpose. When people come in and they've been invited by friends and they don't know God, so they want to come in and show off their sin. You know what they're doing? They're doing that to get a rise out of you. Don't let people troll you in the church. You know what being trolled is, some of y'all? It's when you, you ever watch a Christian YouTube video, like it's a worship song or something, and everyone's like, oh, praise the Lord, God is so good, he's so wonderful, and then somebody goes, God isn't real and Christians are all stupid. And then there's like 90 comments underneath that. It's all Christians thinking they're defending the faith. That, that guy doesn't care. That guy, you are the joke. Those 90 comments are why he did that in the first place. So when someone comes in here and you say, how are you doing? You say, doing good. I'm going to go get high later today. Don't throw rebuke in their face. That's what they're going for. You say, well, you know what? The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is all that we need, and you don't need to do that stuff anymore. I don't believe in God. I can't stand Jesus. So I don't think you've met him yet then, because Jesus is the most wonderful thing. You show love and you show kindness in the face of all that mess, and that's when those people come and find Jesus. And you say, oh, he's back again. Yeah, he's back again. You know why? Even though he's acting exactly the same, he realized, wait a minute, these people actually are different. There's something here. Are we ready for that? I hope the Lord makes us ready for that. I think we're ready to be ready for that. Isn't that good? That's a, that's a start, right? And the third thing they were growing in is their steadfastness. We boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you're enduring. That word for faith is the Greek word pistis, and it's usually translated faith, but it also can be translated faithfulness. I think it's probably a better translation here, although faith isn't wrong. They were persevering, they were being steadfast, and also faithful to the Lord. Their faith hadn't shaken. As you grow as a Christian, your ability to hold up under trials and tribulations should be greater with age. They were facing persecutions and afflictions, and still they were growing. I've heard people say things like, my walk with Jesus was going great, I was growing, I was a solid Christian, and then somebody died, or I got sick, or some terrible thing happened. That just wrecked my faith. Can I say something to you in all kindness? No, it didn't. All that trials can do is expose what was already there. That's why we call them trials. That's why Satan came to the Lord and said, he says, have you seen anybody like my servant Job? There's nobody more righteous than him. He goes, well, yeah, you gave him a bunch of stuff. Take that stuff away, he'll curse you to your face. Well, I took it all away, and he still hasn't cursed me in my face. Yeah, well, you afflict him with sickness and boils, and you send his wife to tell him to go and commit suicide. He'll curse you. That's what a trial is. Let's see what you're made of. So when you're broken by a trial, you were already broken. But when things are calm, it's easy to fake it. And I think it's unfortunate that we have allowed hard times and pain to be like the focus of our lives as Christians. I guess the most important, we're always just oh, focusing on getting through this thing. Jesus said, where's your faith? Hard times and persecution and pandemics and lockdowns and mockery. 
That should strengthen your endurance. It's like building muscles. Why does it hurt when you're building muscle, when you're lifting weights? Because your muscles are ripping. At, at, a, at a small level, they're ripping into pieces. And then they build back and they're stronger. And then they rip and then they build back stronger. That's what it should be like walking with Jesus. It, it, it hurt the first time, but we're back and we're keeping going. And now you're stronger. And nothing can touch you. That's why James would write, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Did any of you? Oh, no, worldwide pandemic. Yay! Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Why, James? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How many sermons have you heard over the last few decades? This church in America hasn't suffered enough. We don't have enough strength to maintain and move forward. It's like, well, here we go. Everyone's going, oh, God, why? It's like, you know why. You've preached why. You've sung about why. And here we are. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. There it is, growing, lacking in nothing. Every small inconvenience in your life is training you for what's coming next. I am more likely to blow up in anger at losing my keys than somebody that wants to get in my face. Because I'm ready for that. But I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for when I bend over and I've got headphones in and catches on my knee and it rips them out of my ears. Every inconvenience is training you for what's coming next. Everyone's like, oh, no, the church in America, we're about to face persecution. Okay, well, it's been a long time. Are you ready to face it? Peter said, don't think that it's strange. This is normal. Jesus said, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Sometimes we say, the world hates us. We must be doing something wrong. The opposite of that is true, actually. The world hates us good, just like they hated Jesus. You ought to be taking advantage of these days of ease and leisure that we have to harden yourself against the temptations of pain and lack and discomfort. You don't have to go trials, go through trials to be ready for trials. Every incident in every little day can make you ready for those things. And now that we're all going through one big one together, we ought to come out of this the most steadfast generation the American church has ever seen. So let's bring it to a close here. More often than not, in the church. We're not growing like we should. We're struggling. Oh, I'm just struggling with that sin. I've been struggling with it for 20 years. Is that what Jesus promised you? No, it is not. John 7, 37 through 39, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me out of the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Hey, Jesus has been glorified. And if you believe in him, rivers of living water by the Holy Spirit are your birthright, Christian. You weren't born on this earth with that right, but you've been born again. And now the Spirit of God dwells within you, but he doesn't want to just dwell within you. He wants to overflow out of you. That's how your sanctification comes. You can't white-knuckle it and make yourself righteous. The Holy Spirit has to do it. So humble yourself before the Lord and let him lift you up. And then he'll teach you to master your body and to batter yourself to do what Jesus tells you to do. We know from Ephesians 2 verse 10 that the Lord has works prepared beforehand for us to walk in. God's got a list. He's got a to-do list for your life. Souls he wants to be saved through you. Ministry he wants to accomplish through you. Moral victories he wants you to gain. Miracles he wants to do in your life. Relationships he wants to heal through you. So are you being sanctified or are you stagnating? Doesn't it excite you, the thought that God's got a plan for you? A plan to bear spiritual fruit. Examine yourself. Because here's the good news. When you repent, you don't got to wait. Isn't that wonderful? When you come to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've spent years just stagnating and this bucket stinks. The Lord doesn't say, okay, good. I want you to wait for 30 days and then we'll see how it goes. No, the Lord said, good, glad you're here. Let's get to work today, now, tomorrow, immediately. The Lord's like, I'm going to move up the schedule because we were waiting on you. You ever feel that way? You're ready to get in the car and you're like, come on, we're waiting on you. Are you ready to go? Yes, I've been ready to go. Let's go. That's how Jesus is right now with you. I'm ready to go. Where are you? Let's get moving. The greatest fervent desire of my heart 
is to see revival come to the United States of America. And I don't want to see a little revival. I want to see a third great awakening where like historians have to acknowledge that something spiritual happened here. But you know where that starts? Right here. You can have revival any day you like. If you allow this to compel you to go home and say, all right, Lord, I'm laying it all out on the table. It's you and me. Where do you want to go? And you will be surprised how quickly God will answer that question. The first thing he'll do is bring up all that sin he wants to get out of your life, and that's painful. Because then you start becoming aware of the things that you do wrong. Like, Lord, how can I ever move forward? But that's when you've got to remember God's like, I've chosen you. I've set you up. You are my son. You are my daughter. And you'll get to the place where Satan will come in to tempt you, and you'll be like, how dare you? How dare you bring a temptation against the one that God has chosen? How dare you lay your hand on the Lord's anointed? How dare you come and try to bring the Holy Spirit of God into fellowship with darkness? And then you don't say, I rebuke you, Satan. You say, Lord, get him. Jude says, we don't bring a reviling accusation against him. We let Lord fight our battles. And the Lord will bring us forward. And that's when the doors are really going to start to open up, y'all. If we want to fill this church with people, we've got to let the Lord fill his people with his spirit first. Amen. 